Hello, veterinary geniuses. Welcome to another episode of Vetfolio Voice. This episode is sponsored by Hills and features the incredible Dr. Jeffrey Bryan here to talk about canine lymphoma. Canine lymphoma has been in the spotlight a bit lately with the availability of new diagnostic and treatment options for these patients, and it can feel like a lot trying to keep up. I don't know about you, but I sometimes get intimidated when it comes to learning and offering new diagnostics or therapeutics, and I just kind of feel like I need someone to hold my hand and walk me through it the first few times. Enter Dr. Brian. The depth of knowledge he brings to the table is incredible, and not only that, he does a great job of explaining it all, particularly when it comes to performing and interpreting diagnostics in these patients, and he does it in a way that kind of feels like someone holding your hand and walking you through it. He does the same with treatment options and general support for lymphoma patients as well, and I feel so lucky to be able to get his insight on some of my questions and I'm hoping this episode can offer a lot of that same insight. Dr. Jeffrey Bryan earned his DVM from the University of California, Davis in 1993. He worked as an associate veterinarian and then served as medical director of the Irving Street Veterinary Hospital in San Francisco, California from 1993 to 2002. Dr. Bryan then completed a medical oncology residency, a master's of biomedical sciences, and a PhD in pathobiology at the University of Missouri. He received certification by the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine and Oncology in 2005. He's the director of the Tom and Betty Scott Endowed Program in Veterinary Oncology, the director of the Pet Imaging Center at the University of Missouri, Associate Department Chair for Research, and the Associate Director of Comparative Oncology for the Ellis Fischel Cancer Center. Dr. Bryant's research focuses on comparative examination of cancers in companion animals to better understand cancer in all species. His particular areas of interest are targeted imaging and therapy, epigenetics, and immunotherapy of cancers. He directs the Pet Imaging Center, which seeks to develop novel pet imaging agents for cancer diagnosis, localization, and prognostication. He studies DNA methylation of canine non-Hodgkin lymphoma and immunotherapy in companion dogs, including investigating fetal microchimerism. So let's all button up our lab coats and jump in. Well, for this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Jeffrey Bryan. We're going to talk about something that, you know, I feel like we can't have enough conversations surrounding this topic, and that's diagnosing and staging lymphoma and getting into some of the management options as well. This is something that, you know, is hugely important, of course, for the well-being of our patients, but there's also been, you know, some advancements here recently. So I'm looking so forward to jumping into it. Dr. Bryan, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for inviting me. This is wonderful. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this might be kind of an obvious question. I'm not sure, but I feel like, you know, there's a lot of subtleties around that first suspicion of lymphoma. So remind us of what our patient looks like when we should be suspicious for lymphoma. <laughs> it's important to realize that lymphoma can look like all kinds of things. And I think the classic lymphoma case is the dog that comes in feeling perfectly well, that has enlarged firm lymph nodes 
and no good reason for that. And so when that is observed, you have to put lymphoma very high in your differential list. Of course, this is going to vary depending on where you are in the country and how many other differentials are likely to cause lymphadenomegaly in a patient. But remember that the feeling well dog with large firm lymph nodes, and I don't mean slightly large, I mean typically quite large firm lymph nodes, should absolutely make you think of lymphoma immediately. Of course, lymphoma patients can present ill, uh, cat patients can have all kinds of different presentations of lymphoma, as we'll probably cover later on. But the the classic one that I think is, is the one that is often overlooked is the apparently healthy looking dog whose lymph nodes are swollen and firm, and the client is completely unaware. And I like that you emphasize the you know, this is, this is a dog that generally feels good because I think that's a good conversation to have with our whole team of, you know, when we have a, a client call and say, oh, you know, I found masses on the neck or something like that. And, you know, oh, we don't have, you know, an appointment right away. It's okay. They're feeling good. Well, maybe that's not okay. Maybe we need to make sure we're all communicating and getting that patient in right away. Absolutely. And it's difficult because there's a cognitive dissonance that arises when you have a patient that you've cared for their entire life and you're con you're connected to the patient, you're connected to the family. And the last thing you want to do is give terrible news. And so it's easy to deceive yourself into thinking that this could be 16 other things when really it's lymphoma that's staring you in the face and a delay in diagnosis could result in a far worse outcome for the patient. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, like you said, it's a good thing for all of us to keep in mind because it can be hard to, especially, you know, in some of these young dogs make that call and say, yeah, I think we're dealing with lymphoma here. Definitely. All right. This topic I'm really looking forward to getting into because I think there is a lot more nuance to it than I can, I've really wrapped my head around at this point. And that's the different types of lymphoma. Can you review for us the different types of lymphoma? Lymphoma, I always say, is my favorite thing that I hate. Uh, it's uh, one of those horrible diseases that is fascinating because of all of the forms in which it arises in our patients. One thing to keep in mind when we're thinking about lymphoma is that it arises from a population of cells that does something that's quite unique in our body. And that is that lymphocytes are built to chop up their DNA and rearrange their DNA in all kinds of different ways particularly in the either immunoglobulin or T-cell receptor gene area in order to be able to respond to all of the potential pathogens that we can encounter in our lifetimes. True of us, true of dogs, true of cats. It's shocking to me, honestly, that it doesn't go wrong more often than it does. You know, it's it's really incredible how how well regulated that is. But as a result, it can lead to lymphomas in all kinds of varieties. And when we think of lymphomas, I think most of us think of the classic high-grade lymphomas with dogs with swollen lymph nodes, a cat with a chest full of fluid that is FELV positive, or a cat that presents not feeling well with elevated renal values, but it's relatively young or middle-aged and it has very large firm kidneys, for example. And so those, those are all classic appearances. But what we're also seeing, and we always have to keep in mind, is the possibility of indolent or low-grade lymphomas as well. Because if we bin them all into the bad category, we will miss the opportunity to treat patients that could have very long survival. And these are, are most common in dogs in the form of either T-zone lymphoma, which can present as moderately enlarged and firm lymph nodes in a very well-feeling dog oftentimes even with a lymphocytosis. And these are 
best diagnosed with flow cytometry often or biopsy, but typically flow cytometry is easier either on the blood that has the lymphocytosis or on a lymph node aspirate. And we see a population of relatively normal sized T cells, but they're lacking the expression of the CD45 antigen that you would typically expect to see there. And these will be identified as an expansion of this abnormal population that's a T-zone lymphoma. These dogs can live literally for years uh, with either no treatment initially or prednisone and chlorambucil as a treatment. So only oral meds at home. They don't have to have the aggressive injectable medicines early on in the course of disease. And these patients can have an excellent quality of life. The other form of indolent lymphoma in dogs that we run across not terribly infrequently is the splenic-based uh, marginal zone lymphoma. They'll have a very large spleen on aspirate. It will be full of lymphocytes. They may even be intermediate size and look a little bit scary. And really, it's not until you remove that spleen and get histopathology from a pathologist that's well-versed in lymphoma pathology that you'll get that diagnosis of, of marginal zone lymphoma. And those dogs also can have a very long survival, even without initial further chemotherapy, just waiting until they need it. So we, we have to remember that those are out there for sure. In cats, I think we're all familiar in practice with the fact that there are really two forms of intestinal lymphomas in cats. There are the lymphocytic low-grade lymphomas that we can treat with prednisone and chlorambucil, again, expecting survival times to average in the years, not in the weeks or months. But then there are those high-grade, in cats, more large-cell lymphomas. And I think in cats, we can pretty well take to the bank that small-cell lymphomas are more often indolent or almost always indolent. Large-cell lymphomas are almost always aggressive. In dogs, frustratingly, we do see small cell aggressive lymphomas too. And so that's where we have to be more nuanced in our diagnostics and our interpretation. But never forget that there are these, these flavors out there that we might have a good outcome. Absolutely. And I love that you went through all of that. I think you, you created a really powerful image right there in the beginning where you said, you know, lymphocytes are designed to go and fold their, their DNA in all kinds of different ways to respond to different pathogens. I mean, just picturing that, like you said, it's just a recipe for something going wrong. So it's <laughs> exactly. amazing that it doesn't go wrong more often. And then it also makes sense that you, there's a lot of different ways that this can present. Absolutely. And, you know, it just shows how miraculous life is. And, and it's, yeah. it's pretty incredible. Uh, the biology is fascinating. Absolutely. Absolutely. You mentioned flow cytometry briefly, yeah. and I want to get into grading and staging of lymphoma and then getting into some of these diagnostics. So, you know, we've talked about indolent versus these higher grade, more aggressive lymphomas. Let's talk grading and staging, and then we can dive off into some diagnostics. Yeah. If I have a patient present to me and I have a suspicion of lymphoma, my first test is typically going to be a fine needle aspirate for cytology. And remember that the enemy of a solid cytologic diagnosis is inflammation. Anytime a pathologist sees a patina of inflammation over cells that even look a little scary like lymphoma cells, the inflammation forces them to hedge their diagnosis and say, this could be a lymphoma or is likely a lymphoma, but cannot rule out extreme reactive lymph node. So if I have a patient that has multiple enlarged lymph nodes, I'm going to aspirate the node that is furthest from any area of potential inflammation. So that means almost never the mandibular lymph nodes because the mouth is usually a trash pit in dogs. And so they've got all kinds of inflammation happening in their mandibular nodes. So the superficial cervical or prescapular node or the popliteal node will often be my go-tos if I have a dog with, with 
lots of enlarged lymph nodes because I want the cleanest, quietest node that the pathologist can look at a pure population of large lymphocytes and feel really confident that they're calling lymphoma. If I do not get a diagnosis of lymphoma or a hedge diagnosis of lymphoma off of the cytology sample, then either biopsy or flow cytometry is the next go-to. I think in practice, if one is not comfortable doing lymph node biopsies on a regular basis, flow cytometry makes the most sense. And there are multiple sources now of excellent quality flow cytometry that are available commercially, and, and it's easy to get um, a protocol for how to collect and prepare those samples for shipping so that the cells arrive alive and happy enough to be able to give us a clear diagnosis. And if you're not familiar with flow cytometry, it's the addition of antibodies with fluorescent markers to this population of cells. And it basically asks the cells to present their identification. It's like, what do you, who are you? Tell us what you're displaying on your surface. And so it can tell us whether these are B or T cells. It can tell us whether they express all of the typical markers that a B or a T would, or if they're starting to lose some of those markers, which is often a hallmark of cancer. And it can even tell us sometimes if they have some negative prognostic markers. So for example, if we have a patient with a lot of large lymphoblast looking cells circulating in the blood, and they happen to be CD34 positive on flow cytometry, that indicates a more stem-like phenotype and probably more of an actual acute leukemia, for example, than a typical peripheral lymphoma that has just become stage five. So getting that diagnosis, I think, is very important. And a lot of times the laboratory can give you information that based on the markers that have been identified, this is a a potentially more aggressive or potentially less aggressive, even in the high-grade lymphomas, which ones have the better prognosis on average. There is another test that is discussed not infrequently, which is the PAR assay or the PCR for antigen receptor rearrangement assay. And this is a PCR test that spans the B-cell receptor and the T-cell receptor genes. And if, if a an individual is reacting to an infectious insult, most of the time their lymphocytes are chopping up and rearranging their receptors to try to get the best fit against the antigen that is associated with the pathogen and try to kill that pathogen. And so if you run a PCR across that, you'll get lots of different lengths of DNA. And so you'll get what's called a polyclonal response. It shows that there are lots of different lineages of lymphocytes in that mix. If it is a cancer, if it's a lymphoma, they will all share typically the same antigen receptor, either B cell or T cell, depending which they are. And so you'll just get one single length or a solid band on the gel. And that is more supportive of lymphoma diagnosis. I don't use myself PAR a great deal uh, because it is a surrogate for the diagnosis of cancer. Just being a monoclonal reaction does not guarantee that that's a cancer. And in an area like Missouri, where we have a fair bit of infectious disease, particularly tick-borne infectious disease, we can occasionally get a, a clonal response of lymphocytes that are actually to an infectious disease, not to a cancer. And so that to me becomes challenging to interpret. And so I prefer to use pathology, either biopsy or flow cytometry to support my diagnoses of lymphomas. And one question I always have, because I've heard flow cytometry several times, is getting those samples. I think yeah. that's like, it makes me a little bit hesitant in practice because I'm like, am I going to collect them correctly? Am I going <laughs> to get accurate results? Am I going to have to call this owner and say, hey, we did this test and now we have to do it again because I screwed it up. 
But from what I understand, those samples are not not incredibly difficult to get. They aren't. If you can get a nice juicy slide out of a lymph node from a 22 gauge fine needle aspirate, you can get enough cells for flow cytometry. So typically what we will do is we'll use an EDTA tube, a purple top tube, and add a CC of saline to it. And then we'll also add some serum from a dog if it's a dog sample, from a cat if it's a cat sample. And then we'll do a fine needle aspirate and make sure that we're collecting a good solid hub of cells out of that. I use a 22 gauge needle. And then then I will gently flow the fluid back and forth to wash everything out of the needle and syringe in order to get all those cells in there. And if it looks nice and cloudy when you hold the tube up to the light, you can feel pretty confident you've got a good sample. Some companies will provide particular medium that is designed to support the lymphocytes in the travel to the location where they'll have the flow cytometry. And so if you use a company like that, they will provide you with, with media tubes. And those don't require any further addition they just have their own medium. So I would say that whatever works best for the practice, have those on hand. If you use the laboratory, they're always going to have instructions on the web that will explain to you how to collect the sample, how to prepare the sample for shipment. And if you're not sure, just refresh your memory before you go to get that sample. That does not seem very scary. It does seem very magical that I can just get this <laughs> aspirate that I would get anyway, and then get so much information from it. It is incredible. And, and it is, you know, we're really fortunate to have the array of high quality diagnostics that we have these days. I mean, it's quite different from 30 years ago and it's, uh, it's exciting and it's very helpful to diagnosing and prognosing for families so that they can understand what they're getting themselves into and trying to help their, their dogs. And what are some of the general principles we should keep in mind when we're when we're diagnosing and prognosing these guys kind of dovetailing back into the, this grading and staging when we're talking about B cell versus T cell and where the lymphoma is located, how it's presenting? What are some of the principles we should keep in mind for ourselves in treating our patients and then also with communicating with the families? Yeah, I, I think that the communication is really critical. And so, of course, the, the rule of thumb that we carry around for, lar for aggressive lymphomas is that B cells tend to be better than T cells, which can be terrible. Um, but I always teach my residents and students that I want the opportunity to treat every lymphoma patient I possibly can, because it is not atypical that we're surprised by how bad, how well some of the bad looking cases do. So you never know. We don't have the crystal ball to know ahead of time. But I think educating the family on what they're potentially in for and letting them know when those negative prognostic factors exist. Does the patient have an aggressive T-cell lymphoma? Is the patient currently sick from its lymphoma? That is a worse prognostic factor. Does the patient have hypercalcemia at the time of diagnosis, which goes along typically with T-cell but also is a negative prognostic factor? And are there other comorbidities that we need to be concerned about? And then the next step that's really important, I think that we have to ask always is, can we treat this patient safely? And so, for example, if you have an older incontinent patient in a house with very small children or toddlers that are crawling and the dog is not going to be able to keep its urine contained and they're going to have household accidents, that is a risk to young growing children that you have to discuss with the family and ask the question, is it the right thing for this patient to 
have cytotoxic chemotherapy in their body that they're going to put into the environment where these kids are. If it's all going outdoors, I'm less concerned because the sun does break this down very quickly. But inside the house, I think we have to be very concerned about environmental contamination. And then the other question is, can the practice safely administer the treatments? Or does this patient absolutely need a referral to a specialist that has the safety equipment, the, the closed system administration devices, and the comfort level handling these drugs so that it can be safely done, minimizing exposure both to the family and to the, the workers in the practice so that nobody is going to be adversely affected by treating this patient. And then the other question that I think we have to ask too is, you know, whenever we start treating a patient with chemotherapy, we become the greatest threat to that patient's life, honestly, because they can become neutropenic and become septic and they can die from side effects of the chemotherapy. So do we live in a location where that patient has access to emergency care as they need to, should they have a complication like that? And this is something that's very important where we are in Missouri, because we have we serve a lot of rural communities where they don't have easy access to 24-hour emergency care to get IV fluids and antibiotics if they become septic and neutropenic, and they have to be prepared to drive, and they need to be educated on what the very earliest signs of that look like. So all of those safety factors, I think, are very important to discuss with the family. And I think that we as veterinarians have to be very honest with ourselves about our ability to manage these things in our practices safely and, and keeping our staff safe. I know, I guess another communication question I would have in mind along the lines of prognosing is, you know, of course, we get that million dollar question of like, you know, if I do all of this, is it going to work? How do you... <laughs> How do you handle those kind of questions from clients? Yeah. And, you know, in cats, honestly, the only prognostic factor that is present across almost every study ever done looking at lymphoma in cats is do they respond to chemotherapy? And so what I typically will tell people is, well, let's embark on the journey and let's just be honest with ourselves about how it's going. And if things are going well, I think we can take heart in that and feel confident that we're getting where we want to go. If things are not going well, we need to recognize that and make the decision for the patient early enough that we don't cause undue suffering. There is a company now that is offering basically an artificial intelligence machine learning approach to evaluating both clinical uh, and um, uh, demographic information along with flow cytometric information and ex vivo chemotherapy sensitivity information to predict for a family, is your dog likely to be one that's going to respond well to multi-agent chemotherapy or is your dog not? My hope is that the work this company is doing will continue to advance and evolve and will be borne out in further study to show that it really works. But for some families, that's a really important piece of information information is can we ask the question ahead of time, is my dog likely to do average, better than average, or worse than average with chemotherapy? And that might matter to them. And therefore, the expense of that testing might be a very worthwhile investment to them. So those kinds of things can be discussed. It's fascinating. All of the advancements, it's just changed so much. Even just here very recently, you know, once we do get these results, whether we test their response to chemo or not, ha we have a lot more options than we used to have for treating yeah. dogs with lymphoma. So can you remind us of some of what those options might be, you know, it's it's more than just prednisone, thank goodness. <laughs> yes. And something we all have to keep in mind is that as soon as we start prednisone, the clock is now ticking 
to multi-drug resistance. And so if you're going to think about using definitive chemotherapy for a lymphoma patient, delay the prednisone until you can start the chemotherapy or imminently start the chemotherapy within just a few days if possible. Then, of course, we have the other big drugs, uh, cyclophosphamide, vincristine, and doxorubicin, part of our CHOP-like protocols. Uh, they're different in animals because we give them serially and one a week, whereas in humans, you get all four drugs at the same time. And that's a, a much rougher protocol, and we don't put our dogs through that typically. But we have some advances recently. Uh, there is a new oral drug that has been approved for lymphoma called Lavertia or Ver Nexer. And this is a sign inhibitor. It basically stops the export of materials from the nucleus into the cytoplasm and can block the cells up and potentially kill cells in, that are trying to divide too rapidly. This is an oral drug that can be given at home. There is some recent work out of Washington State University that suggests that it does not upregulate multidrug resistance. And so if you are delayed starting definitive chemotherapy, using Verdinexer might be a reasonable thing to do to get you through to getting the chemotherapy. In its initial study, that's been published, about a third of dogs with B-cell lymphoma responded to it and got enough benefit that it would probably buy you the time to make the chemotherapy. But interestingly, of dogs with T-cell lymphomas, uh, more than two-thirds of them responded to the drug pretty well. So I do think that's an interesting one for at least initial getting through to having more, more definitive injectable chemotherapy. And we may find in the coming years that this drug combines well with other drugs to cause some better outcome for T-cell cell lymphomas, we will just have to see how those studies go. There is another big drug that's been approved called Tenovia, and Tenovia is probably better for B-cell lymphomas than for T-cell lymphomas. It, it appears to be a reasonably big gun that is not terribly dissimilar from doxorubicin in its response rate and duration. It combines well in an alternating pattern with doxorubicin to give patients reasonably long remission durations, and, and so it might be an alternative to using the full four-drug protocol for patients that coming every week is a real challenge. And so we're excited about these. Nothing is without side effects in the world of anti-cancer drugs, whether they're chemotherapy drugs or immunotherapies. And so the, the Verdinexer can definitely suppress appetite, uh, just like which is the opposite of what prednisone does, frustratingly. And then, of course, with the Tenovia, we cannot, it has a black box warning for or West Highland White Terriers because it can cause idiosyncratically, apparently, pulmonary fibrosis. And so for breeds that are particularly at risk or a dog that we know has pulmonary fibrosis or suspect, we should not use Tenovia. And it also can cause some cutaneous reactions. Uh, the interesting thing about the cutaneous reactions is it suggests the possibility that it also might be useful in cutaneous lymphomas. So we're waiting to see the outcome of some of those studies as well. Very cool. Yes. I know one of the challenges in private practice can be that time frame between diagnosis and referral. Yeah. Um, so having some options out there to say, maybe we can buy ourselves a little bit of time because certainly time is of the essence in these patients. But like you said, a lot of further studies to be done because of course with Verdinex or CA1, we have conditional approval at this point, but it'll be really exciting to see where some of these options go in the future. Absolutely. And, you know, Vertinexer is probably a good one to have on the shelf for those clients that, that want referral. And the the referral situation in 2023 is very challenging. It is, it, 
everyone is overwhelmed with the demand for care. And it's a frustrating situation that results in, I think, dissatisfaction for clients that are worried about their animals and can't get the care in the timely manner they would like. It certainly causes dissatisfaction for us on the referral veterinarian end because we want to help these patients quickly. And it's very hard not to have the bandwidth to help everyone immediately. And so having tools in the sh on the shelf like Verdinexer, I think are, are very useful for general practitioners who are seeing these patients and can help get them through to seeing those oncologists. You know, when we're managing these patients, we've we've talked a lot about getting to the diagnosis and and good communication with the family. And, you know, of course, these medications we're talking about to for treatment and, you know, as an intermediary to buy us some time. What are some of the other important considerations to keep in mind when we're managing patients with lymphoma? Yeah. One thing I think is very important and and somewhat overlooked is to recall that there is very clear evidence in the literature that lymphoma patients are somewhat immunosuppressed. And so secondary infections are not terribly uncommon, even in patients that are not yet in chemotherapy or are relapsing, having coming out of chemotherapy, and they are not getting those drugs. So urinary tract infections are something we need to watch for in our lymphoma patients, particularly if prednisone's part of the treatment, that can definitely predispose. And it is important when we're treating cancer patients as veterinarians to not put on the blinders and expect that everything that might go wrong with them is directly cancer related. It's sad when we see patients that a euthanasia's decisions made for example, when what they really were dealing with was a secondary infection that was not anticipated or wasn't identified, and we could have identified that. And so I, I think that that one of the important communication pieces when we have these cancer patients, and not just lymphoma, but cancers of all kinds, is that we start over when a new problem arises and evaluate it as objectively as possible with our broad differential list. It may be cancer-related, but it's not always cancer-related. And so remembering that we have to always keep our hats on as veterinarians to think of all the possible diagnoses and, and that these patients with lymphoma may be immunosuppressed. The other big thing that we mentioned earlier is we have to we have to educate clientele on safety around patients who have had chemotherapy and prepare them to handle accidents in the house, to handle a surprise, you know, vomiting after they have given a pill at home of chemotherapy. How do they manage that so that they're doing it safely and they're caring for themselves? And in our practices too, we have to recognize what the, the local requirements are for managing chemotherapy and handling them. Are we going to be following USP 800 guidelines in our area and what are the demands of that? And absolutely educate yourself on closed administration systems. Uh, there are a number of good products on the market that essentially remove needles and air interfaces so that we just connect everything together fluid flows from one container to another and then from the, the syringe or the bag into the patient and that's never broken. And that way we really minimize the risk of aerosolizing chemotherapy or contaminating the environment. One thing that we do here because we administer chemotherapy multiple times every day as an oncology service is we do periodic environmental swabs also that are sent out and analyzed for toxic analytes to make sure that we don't have contamination in the environment that could affect our nursing staff or our and we want to make sure that safety is primary. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. That's always been um, something that makes me a little bit nervous when it comes to injectable chemotherapy. And I don't know, maybe I don't trust myself because I'm a very clumsy person. I'm like, <laughs> I just feel like disaster would ensue if if I was allowed to handle these drugs. <laughs> well, definitely these, these closed administration systems, uh, I won't say they're foolproof, but they are a lot better, definitely. But it does take me back to the early days of my career where I remember using a needle and syringe and drawing chemo up in the middle of a busy treatment room and gosh, we really weren't paying attention back then. So uh, it's exciting that we have these much better systems now. And we've learned that, you know, using these using hoods to protect ourselves and our staff are really important. And then making sure that our patients are urinating outside as, as a few urinary uh, eliminations within the building as possible, just so that we reduce the potential exposure is important. Absolutely. So I, I also want to ask about appetite because you know, we talked about um, some of these drugs will suppress appetite. Of course, prednisone stimulates appetite. And just in general, when we're managing patients with any type of cancer, managing calorie intake, maintaining weight, all of this can be a real challenge. Can you talk a little bit about nutrition in lymphoma patients? It is a very important topic, and there are, I think, several aspects to it that we have to consider. First, there's obviously a lot of information on the web that will scare clients and families about what their dog should or shouldn't eat. And, you know, there's, there is a broadly held understanding that cancer cells overconsume glucose. So therefore, if we feed less sugar, our patient's cancer cells will be starved by the diets. And unfortunately, that is not true because we have functional livers that will make all the glucose that the cancer wants to eat. So that is a big challenge. I think the most important nutritional aspect uh, for these patients is that we make sure that patients maintain a healthy plane of nutrition. And so this comes in two forms. One, we don't want them to have undernutrition. So if they're not eating, are we controlling their nausea well enough? And obviously we have great medications and combinations of medications to control their nausea. Are we using appetite stimulants when we need to, to make sure that they're still eating? And are we feeding them, if they aren't eating very much, a calorically dense enough food? And that's something where the New Hills Onco Diet is wonderful. It is highly digestible, it is highly palatable, and it is very calorie dense. And so if you have a patient that just won't eat much in certain periods of time of their treatment, it's a great option for making sure that they're getting sufficient calories in to maintain their weight. What I find is a similar problem is the opposite problem, and that is clients who are are recognizing that their time with their their loved one is potentially limited. And so I joke all the time with clients about not feeding the last meal diet. So they're not eating <laughs> a last meal type meal every time they eat. And so we tend to see overnutrition as a problem too. And so maintaining body weight is really important. And there is some evidence on the human side, at least, that patients who lose weight during chemotherapy have a poorer outcome. And there's even some evidence that gaining weight throughout the chemotherapy can have a poorer outcome. That also raises some concerns, especially patients who gain substantial body fat weight of, of how do we dose the chemo drugs? How do we alter their dosages as their weight climbs? Are we dosing lean body weight? Are we dosing total body weight? And that could lead to some problems with, with chemotherapy side effects that might've been avoided if their body weight had just stayed stable. So I think that maintaining a healthy plane of nutrition, feeding a high quality diet that meets their needs and and meeting the family's needs to feel like they're caring for their animal. That is important. And, and that is something that I think we 
make a mistake as veterinarians at times where we just tell them, no, you need to feed dog food and you need to feed it this way. What we're not hearing is the client's need to care for the animal and to make make them feel like they are giving the animal everything they can to make their life good. And so listen to those needs, discuss what they want to do and how they want to do it and help guide them in healthy choices for their animals. Because everybody wants their dog's last days to be the best quality they possibly can. And the beautiful thing with lymphoma is a lot of times those last days are numerous uh, if they're responding well to chemotherapy. We we hope to see most of our newly diagnosed lymphoma dogs in a year. And that's that to me is a rewarding outcome. I wish that were true for the patients I treated with, with kidney failure, for example, you know, or heart failure. Again, we have new drugs, but a lot of those patients aren't going to be here in a year. And probably more than half of our lymphoma patients will with good quality treatment. We also do not know which of our lymphoma patients are the ones that are going to blow away our expectations and be the ones that never relapse, or they relapse four times over five years and have an incredibly long extended outcome. And, and because we can't predict those ahead of time very well, that's why I always like to give them a chance at treatment. And I try to get every patient in treatment in a way that respects the family's limitations and the family's needs as much as possible. And, you know, we're always looking for those hopeful things on the horizon. And I think everyone is aware that immunotherapy is the rage in human oncology right now. And we are lacking some important resources on the veterinary side. So one of the biggest advances in human lymphoma oncology, particularly B-cell lymphoma, is the advent of rituximab, an anti-CD20 antibody that binds to B-cells and helps alert the immune system to the presence of these B cells and have them eliminated. Now, it does result in reducing your normal B cells also, but it has dramatically improved the long-term outcome with standard chemotherapy for people to have rituximab. And so I'm hopeful that within the next few years, we will have a functional rituximab for dogs that will work. I think we're further away in cats, unfortunately, but for dogs, I am hopeful we have something on the horizon. And that could dramatically change the outcome for dogs with B-cell lymphoma in the future. The other big advance on the human side that's been highly successful and potentially even curative, it appears, are something called CAR T-cells. And these are taking the patient's own T-cells, inserting genetically a a what they call a chimeric antigen receptor or a CAR into the T-cells to make them professional killers of any cell that carries a particular antigen on the surface. And so again, you can put an anti-B cell CAR into these patient's own T cells, transfuse them back into the patient, and these professional assassins will flow through the bloodstream and kill every B cell they find. And uh, it's pretty amazing how effective these have been in people. Uh, it's even more amazing how expensive they've been in people. And so we're working with company, we're working with a company that is trying to develop what could be a very affordable off-the-shelf anti-CD20 uh, B-cell car. And so we're hoping that one of these days, those cellular therapies will be available for lymphomas too. Much of this is being driven by public demand. Our clients are asking for care 
that we are slow to be able to provide. And, and that's something that I have found maybe most rewarding about being in the oncology space is that we're helping bring these advances to a, you know, a pet loving public that's asking for them. We're not pushing them on them. They want these things. And we're trying to help improve the lives of these animals and improve the family's lives as well. And it's, it's a pretty exciting time to be involved in this kind of care. Yes. I've always heard, you know, if you're going to have cancer, lymphoma is, you know, the one to have. And whenever <laughs> I've heard that, my brain always goes, yeah, spoken like an oncologist. I don't know about that, <laughs> but you may have me convinced here just that, you know, there are so many advances that are coming to light. And like you said, that are driven by public demand. And I would say that absolutely echoes what I see clinically of, you know, it breaks my heart when I say, you know, I don't have good options and I can't get you into an oncologist and, and all of this. And, and fortunately we can usually figure it out, but sometimes it's, it feels like it's a little harder than it should be. So these different advances that can really help create a bridge between general practice and oncology referral and treat these patients, like you said, in a way that's really sensitive to what the family is wanting and what that patient needs is just so exciting. Yeah, it really is. It's uh it's I find it very rewarding. And you know, I always hope that my dog won't be the dog that gets lymphoma for sure. But you're right. If you have if you have a cancer as a dog that needs chemotherapy, lymphoma is the most responsive cancer we have to chemo. And and I'm always optimistic that we can keep our patients with us longer than we fear. And the other piece of it is that it creates a space for the family to come to terms with the dog's diagnosis and come to terms with the fact that they they will likely lose their friends sometime in the next year. But at the same time, we restore health and vitality to these dogs through the chemotherapy. They have amazing qualities of life. I've had hunting dogs that hunted all the way through their chemotherapy, agility dogs that did agility all through their chemotherapy. And just the ability to keep these dogs and these cats with their families for longer is very rewarding. Absolutely. Well, I will say this conversation has been hugely informative. I've learned so much. I do think I'm going to go give my dog a hug after this. <laughs> you, you should every day. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. But thank you so much for, you know, just such an insightful and, you know, just really informative talk about all of what is involved in lymphoma and some of the exciting developments that are coming up. Are there any final thoughts you want to share with us? I think that partnership between specialists and primary care veterinarians is so critical. You know, know your oncologist, know your surgeon, know your cardiologist in your area if you're a general practitioner. Have that relationship that you can share cases and you can help work with them as a partner to really advocate for your patients because it is amazing to me how often for my clients, their primary care veterinarian's opinion means more than anything to them. The This relationship we have with our clientele and with our patients is, is a sacred trust that we are really privileged as veterinarians to be held in such high esteem by the general public. And we want to keep that. And, and I think that 
all of us respecting what each of us does is such a critical part of the care team. And I appreciate so much the practitioners that refer their beloved and treasured patients to us for care. And I hope that we and the rest of the oncologists really honor that trust and, and help build that partnership because it's the, it's that partnership with the primary care veterinarians that's going to result in the best outcome and the best communication with the families. And so appreciate all of you out there very much. Oh, so well said and such a powerful message. I, you know, and, and we appreciate hearing that at least I do as a general practitioner, because, <laughs> you know, sometimes if you're making that phone call or sending that text message or something, you're like, oh, I don't want to bother you. So, you know, it's, it's so nice to hear that and be reminded, no, reach out, continue, maintain that relationship and, and let's work together to, to treat these animals. Absolutely. Dr. Brian, thank you so much for joining me for this episode and a big thank you to Hills for making this episode possible. I hope you guys enjoyed that talk as much as I did. I know I'm feeling a little bit more confident about approaching these diagnostics and therapeutics in canine lymphoma patients. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your insight on this talk as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.